Last week, in the first part of John 6, we, we looked at the passage where Jesus feeds the 5,000 men and then the, the women and children, of course, that were with them with two fish and five simple barley loaves um, of bread. And uh, it was in, in ended with exactly enough left over to exactly feed the disciples exactly what they needed um, at the end of, of that miracle. After that, the people wanted to make him king, but Jesus slips away by himself to go hang out on a mountain and then... He doesn't return before nightfall, so the disciples got on a boat and started going across the sea about six miles to Capernaum. In the middle of the night, a storm came. Of course, in the midst of that storm, Jesus takes off walking across the water to where the disciples are, about three and a half miles out on the, the water, scares, uh, scares them to death almost, and they finally realize it's Jesus. He says, no, I, I am here. It's me. Don't be afraid. And so they welcome into the boat, and then they make it immediately to the other side of the shore. Um, and so that was kind of the, what sets up where we're at today. In the first paragraph of our passage today, the crowd that was fed by Jesus, part of that crowd at least, has followed him. They've gotten on boats and followed the disciples across the sea. But they had taken notice that Jesus wasn't on the boat uh, when the disciples left. And so when they see him there in Capernaum the next morning, they ask him, when did you come here? They wanted to know, how is this possible? How are you here? You were not on this boat, and you weren't on any of our boats. How did you get here? Well, what we're going to see in our passage today is that Jesus doesn't seem to be interested particularly in their curiosity. He doesn't answer their question directly. He, um, he seems to be pointing out that his miracles aren't for their entertainment. They're for their salvation. They're meant to make them see that, that he is the Savior that they need. They're missing the point of what he's doing in his ministry. So we're going to read this passage. We're going to read John chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 22 and just read down to 34. And we're going to see how Jesus confronts their misunderstanding about him. And he points out to them what they really need from him. So give great attention to the reading uh, of the very word of God. John chapter 6 verse 22. It says, On the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, Give us this bread always. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before your word. We are dependent upon you. You are the bread of life that we need. But yet we chase after so many other things seeking ultimate satisfaction. 
Help us to see that you are the one thing that we need to bring satisfaction to our souls. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. We all have an insatiable hunger for fulfillment, for meaning in life, to know what is our purpose. Why are we here? What is it that we're, we're made for? And what is it that ultimately will, will satisfy us? That hunger might show up in many places, maybe in a desire for pleasure, or romance, or joy, or wealth, or fame, or nobility and honor. It might show up in a desire for peace or a desire to be entertained. And while none of these things are necessarily bad things in themselves to desire, in fact, most of the things on which we set our hopes for fulfillment and, and meaning are good things. And it's not wrong for us to actually pursue those things. Where we make an error is that we take, when we make any of those things into an ultimate thing, something that we feel we have to have in order to survive in peace and contentment and joy, or to survive at all in some cases. We tend to make idols out of things that are meant to be good gifts to us. We see them in an inordinate way. Things that you know, Jesus points out this longing in the lives of the people in this crowd that are following him around. He tells them that they have missed the point of his miracles. The, the miracles are meant to point them to his power, to his divinity. The miracles could, should cause them to stop and say, surely this man has come from God. Surely, in a sense, this is the Messiah that we have been waiting for. But Jesus points out that, that they are just following him around because he fed them and they want more food. They are simply there because of the physical and material benefits that came through the miracles that he has done. They're not seeking the glory in the one that did the miracles, but to simply rejoice in the benefits that the miracles has brought to them personally. And there's a difference there, a distinction to be made uh, between those things. And, and first of all, I guess I should stop and say you know, and, let, and point out that we can enjoy both. We can enjoy both the physical blessings that come from God and worship him for who he really is. Those things can go together. It's not one or the other. What we're going to see is that getting them in the right order actually brings fulfillment and enhancement to both of those, to all of those things. We can be thankful for the provisions and blessings that come through his mercy and grace and at the same time still acknowledge that those things are secondary to the fact that God giving us eternal blessings that are primary. That it's God who does those things. We can worship him in gratefulness and joy while at the same time enjoying the gifts that he's given us. Our problem is that we tend to rejoice over the gifts more than the giver. It's good for us to trust God to meet our needs and, and then through us to meet the practical needs of our neighbors even. But our ultimate goal is to point people, including ourselves, to the eternal glory of God, our need to live gladly under his authority. That's what Jesus is trying to point out in his teaching here. And secondly, we need to see that things are no different in our day. The, the prosperity gospel, of course, is an easy target in this area. Those preachers that, that downplay the need for repentance and sin, if they even mention sin at all, so, and simply call people to worship God so that God will be pleased with them and give them earthly blessings. They see God as a sort of ATM machine. If I put in the right obedience, I'll get. God will have to give me the blessings that I deserve. And so there's a sense in which, that, in which they're putting God in their debt. 
They teach a faith that's essentially a, fat, a pathway to being comfortable in this life. And so it's easy for us to throw darts at those guys. We see them on TV. We see them in Those guys are bad, right? Those guys have distorted the gospel. But are we any better? Are we any better? I think we at times fall into the trap of wanting Jesus for what he can give us rather than for who he is. How often do we outwardly obey God thinking that he will see our faithfulness and be so impressed that he will have to give us some temporal blessing that we need, some healing or some, some benefit, some, some thing, some gift. When we do that, we're doing the same thing. We're thinking that we can put God into our debt, that he owes us. Now, there's an overreaction at this point sometimes where people go, well, I just won't obey God at all. It doesn't make a difference. No, that's not the case. We should obey God. And, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't or that the blessings aren't the fruit of obedience because obedience does bear fruit in our lives. What I am saying, though, is that we should obey God because our obedience is honoring to him. We should obey him because we love him, not just to get things from him. Do you see the difference? We love because he first loved us. These people who have chased the disciples to Capernaum are there not because they long to worship or even to give thanks to Christ, it seems. They are there because they think that they can get another free meal. They are only interested in the presence of the gifts, not the glory of the giver. And that's the danger that we have to be careful, the trap we have to be careful not to fall into. And so in light of this, Jesus starts teaching. He points out that they have their priorities wrong. He says that they are consumed with getting food that perishes when they should be seeking food that endures to eternal life. Now, of course, Jesus is, is, is trying to force them into a transition from thinking about temporal things to spiritual things. And that's a hard jump to make, particularly when you're in a crowd of people that are hungry. You got fed yesterday, but now today's a new day. What are they thinking? Where are we getting food? How are we going to survive? Or am I going to feed my wife and kids today? Remember, all these people are travelers in Jerusalem or heading towards Jerusalem for the Passover. They're not home. Their normal means of provision aren't there. They're, in many ways, dependent upon mercy. And so there's a real hunger there, and Jesus knows that. He met their needs the day before. We saw that. But here, he tells them, he even, he, you know, he says to them, but you need something more than physical food, than bread and water. He tells them that where, he even tells them where they are to look for this eternal food. They look to him because he is the one who has come from the Father. He says, for on him, speaking in the third person about himself, the Father has set his seal. He's saying that the miracles that he's been doing, the things that they have seen or heard about, changing water into wine, healing the, the blind man, healing the lame man at the pool, heal, you know, feeding the 5,000 with the, the bread and the fish. What is the point of all these things? He's saying that the miracles that he's been doing are the proof that he is sent from God, that he is the Messiah. Now, of course, that's what ticks all the Jewish leaders off. But right now, he's not talking to them. He's talking to the crowds that are following him. A seal being used in that day, he says that, you know, that, that God has set his seal upon him. A seal being used in that day to mark a document as being authentic, sort of like a notary public would do today. A king or, or someone in, in some authority would send a a letter to someone across a great distance and you had to know did this really come from them and so the way they would do that is they would take their ring their seal put it in wax and seal uh, that document so that the person who opens it knows that what's in here came from this, this person who owns this seal Jesus is saying the same thing about God you trust God you know God is in authority 
God has set his seal on me. And the proof of that, the thing you need to read, are these miracles that I'm doing that show that I am the Messiah. I am the one who has come from God, who's the one upon whom he has set his seal. So all these people, though standing in the presence of God in the flesh, here's the God-man, the Messiah, the one they have longed for, for, for generations. And they want fish. They want bread. They want water. And God is standing before them. And they can't see God because they're consumed with the temporal things of life. But he now has their attention. They ask the right question. They say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What a great question. It's, what a vital question. It may be the most important question that a human can ask. How do we honor God? What must we do to please God? That's, the great, that's a great question. Maybe the great question. Jesus says, this is the work of God. Great. This is what we need to know, right? This, this is it. God's going to tell us what we need to do to earn his favor. Right? Let's see. This is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he has sent. That you believe in him in whom he has sent. What does Jesus do? He points to the primacy of faith. To the, to the fact that faith is vital. It's not what we do as much as who we trust in. If we trust in the right person, he'll reorder our desires, call us to repentance and faith. We'll end up doing the right things. And trusting him to be the right thing for us in our place. Because that's how the gospel works. Christ is perfectly obedient and gives us his obedience. What are we to do? To trust in him, to believe in him. And so at this point, they don't see the whole picture. They can't see the whole picture. They don't know at this point, this man's going to die for my sins. But Jesus is inviting them into this relationship where if they'll trust him, he'll reveal those things to him. They'll ultimately see what it is that Christ has come to do. But we see the whole picture. We see, we are able to look back in history and know that Christ came in the flesh, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, took the wrath of God upon himself that we deserve, and then for, forgave our sins, set us free for all of eternity, inviting us into eternal life that he is the Lord of, an abundant life here on earth. And so we, are, we understand what Jesus is inviting them to. But yet we still struggle with the same things they struggle with, right? Jesus has just told them to work or labor for food that endures to eternal life. And they essentially say, okay, what work do we do for this? Because he said, you know, work for the food that endures, not the food that passes away. And so Jesus here doesn't give them five steps to earning God's favor or seven keys to happy living. He tells them that faith in the Messiah is what they need. They need to believe in the one that God has sent. So he points them to this, that the nature of faith is essential. Astonishingly, at this point, they ask him for a sign. What sign would he do for them to believe in? They have just seen, just the day before, they have seen this man feed 5,000 men plus women and children with five pieces of bread and two fish. And the very next day, they say, well, what sign can you do for us that we would believe in you? Do you how quickly we forget, right? How quickly we forget the blessings that have come to us already. 
They even point out that they would like a sign like their forefathers had when they were given manna in the wilderness. <laughs> what irony! They've just been given that exact sign. Jesus knows that they revere, revere Moses for being the one through whom that provision of manna had come. So he reminds them that he is the fulfillment of all that Moses did and wrote. He tells them, it wasn't Moses who gave your ancestors the manna in the desert. He was a recipient of that blessing just like everybody else. It was God who provided that miracle, and it is God who is now giving you the true bread from heaven. He says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they say, sir, give us this bread always. Now we stopped reading right there. Well, let's look ahead to the next verse for just a second. Because Jesus goes even further in helping them see what he's talking about. In verse 35, Jesus says, you know, they say, give us this bread always. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, he's talking spiritually. What are they hearing? Likely the physical. Give us this always. All the bread and all the water we could ever need? Yes. We'll see how he deals with that issue next week. We'll look at that, that next paragraph. But here, speaking spiritually, he couldn't be more clear about the fact that he himself is the Messiah. He is the one to bring spiritual satisfaction to their souls. He... He's the one that can bring hope for eternal fulfillment, for eternal life. You know, we should always be crying out to Christ. Sir, give us this bread always. Give us yourself always. We need to always be living in dependence upon Christ alone. But the reality is, just like these guys, we get distracted by the things of this world. So how do we know when we're slipping into a trap of looking for something besides Christ to give us fulfillment? Well, I think we can look at two things, contentment and discontentment in our lives and be a judge of that and see where we content, where we discontent um, and see how those two things show up and when they show up in our lives. Discontentment um, often shows up in our hurry to get to the next thing, the next vacation, the next job, the next, you know, to, to, get, to, to get married or some to change my spouse to, you know, that there's this I'll finally reach fulfillment when I have kids. And then when you have kids, you go, I'll finally reach fulfillment when my kids leave the house. And then you go, you know, maybe it's a new car or a new house or new clothes or maybe a, a new city, maybe a new church, maybe new friends, maybe what, something different. Obviously, this isn't working, so I need something new. We find ourselves looking for some external event or some external change to bring fulfillment into our lives. Yet, when these things come along, they still don't satisfy. The vacation isn't long enough. The new job quickly starts to feel like work. We get married and we find ourselves fighting before the honeymoon's even over. We, we wonder, what's happened? Why is everything in this, my life broken? Why does none of it work? Well, we live in a fallen world. And we live in a world that's not designed to meet those needs that we are trying to satisfy with these things. Our problem is that we make these things of earth into little gods who we hope will bring the fulfillment that only the one true God can bring us through Jesus Christ, through the work of his spirit. And so what happens is we end up putting all this pressure on all of these things to make us happy that we 
And we do that to the point that we can't actually enjoy the good things about those things. And we can't rejoice in them as the gift from God that they are meant to be. For example, Paul Tripp talks about marriage uh, in this vein. Here's what he says. Romantic love is a wonderful gift and a terrible God. See what he's saying? Romantic love is a, a terrible gift, is a wonderful gift, but it makes a terrible God. What he means is that marriage and romance are great things that God has given us to enhance our lives, to bring us pleasure and joy and companionship, even to give us a picture of what our relationship with Christ is like. But when we put the weight of all of our hopes for happiness and joy on that marriage, then we are destroyed when conflict or hardship shows up and destroys our hopes. We believe that we can never be happy unless we have this perfect marriage or perfect spouse or you know, nothing about being the perfect spouse, just having the perfect spouse, right? Um, but the institution of marriage and family was never meant to bear the weight of that burden. And here, you'll hear C.S. Lewis say something similar in a few minutes. I'm talking about the best marriages in that case. Here's how Tripp goes on to explain the problem of making our marriage into an idol. He says, so I am never going to have paradise in my marriage. Paradise is to come. I'm never married to a perfect person. That person will never be my Messiah. The person I'm married to has no capacity whatsoever to change my heart. That person I'm married to has no capacity whatsoever to bring satisfaction and contentment to my heart. And there he's talking about your heart as the deep seat of your emotions, the core of who you are. <laughs> they have no ability whatsoever to deliver me from my sin, which is the greatest need of the core part of who you are. They just have no ability to do any of that. And so a good marriage is a good marriage because people in that marriage realize they are not the Messiah to one another. But they don't panic because they have been given an adequate and sufficient Messiah who invades marriage by his grace and gives us everything we need to be who we are supposed to be and to do what we are supposed to do in marriage. Okay, you see that? The marriage isn't meant to meet those deep, 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 deep desires who we are. Christ is meant to meet those. And when Christ meets those, then I don't put the weight on my spouse to meet those things. I can actually enjoy the relationship I have with her without demanding that she meet needs that it's impossible for her to meet. We do that with everything. Our jobs, our relationships, our friendships, our stuff. We have everything we have a tendency to do this with. So I hope you see his point. The problem and the solution that he gives applies to all to anything outside of Christ that we're tempted to place our hope for fulfillment in. When we live in this truth that Christ is all that we need, like I said, then we can relax and enjoy the good gifts that he's given us without putting pressure on those things uh, or even on ourselves to give us only what Christ has done. Paul's talking about this on some level when he says he has learned to be content in plenty and in want. We can stick our idols sort of into that equation. Um, you know, we can say, I've, you know, I've learned to be content in marriage or in singleness. I've been content. I, I have to learn to be content in a great job or a tedious job. Content with a staycation or the Swiss Alps. It's, we, maybe not, I don't know. Um, you know, content with a bowl of rice or a Ruth's Chris steak, right? We struggle with this stuff. We think, how can we be content when we know this is possible? So how did Paul get to that place of contentment? I think he got there because he trusted in Christ. 
by believing the gospel. We might even say by regularly preaching the gospel to himself. Do you think Paul wasn't attempted by those things? No. What did Paul say? He struggled with what? Coveting. What is coveting? It's wanting what my neighbor is keeping up with the Joneses. I want what you have because I see that it brings you some joy. Maybe I need that to bring me joy. But ultimately it's not. And so to be content in plenty or in want. In the moments when we're tempted to be dragged down by the weights of the things of this world that don't satisfy us, what are we to do? We're to run to the cross. To be reminded of the one thing that is truly meant to bring us satisfaction. One truth that helps us is to remember that we were designed to live for the glory of another. We are called to live for the glory of God. We, our catechism teaches us this, right? What is the primary purpose of man? primary purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But yet we live for what? Our own glory. We're naturally bent to live for the glory of me, not the glory of God or the glory of you or anything else but glory of me. So I, my, my hope is that everything will revolve around me. And what have I just done? I've made myself the idol. I've made myself the little God. And you may be a great person. I may be a great person, but I'm like a terrible God. There's one God, and our lives are to revolve around him and his glory. As long as we pursue selfish, temporal things to try to satisfy our souls, we're going to always end up unfulfilled, frustrated, and angry. We may be angry at God for not making us happy. We might get angry at the people in our lives because they don't live up to our unrealistic expectations. For example, they don't live for our glory to the degree that, the degree that we think they should. We'll be angry at our circumstances and possibly even angry at ourselves because we haven't figured this out yet, how to find fulfillment. But the fact is that our frustration comes from the fact that we are, we're looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. C.S. Lewis says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. To find satisfaction in another world, we might say. He says, most people, if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject which excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy and he says, I am not now think, speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learning careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. So there was something we have grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. Y'all read C.S. Lewis? We should read C.S. Lewis more. The irony of all this is that when I actually do accept the fact that Christ is the supreme satisfaction and I become content in that fact, the pressure that I put on the things of this world lessens and I'm actually able to enjoy the good gifts that God has given me instead of simply trying to use them to force joy into my life. As I've already said, we have to remember that the things of this world are not designed to live up to that pressure. I'm going on vacation in three weeks. 
two weeks from now, I will be inconsolable because all I'll think about is I'm only four or five days from the beach. But yet what happens? All of that longing builds up, all that excitement. And then 30 seconds into being in the car, there's war going on <laughs> between not just my kids, but me and my kids, probably me and my wife. My me. And all of a sudden I've got, well, this is just, I just wasted this money. I was going for this great fulfillment and now I have nothing, right? We do that with everything. Put all of our hopes and dreams in something that's going to finally bring us fulfillment. Does that mean we shouldn't go on vacation? No, we should go on, go on, on vacation. <laughs> but if the vacation is the end, instead of just a gift along the journey, we've gotten disordered. All right, so I have more quotes. It's quote day for some reason. I don't know. Very good stuff. People write on this a lot. That's the thing. Thomas Brooks, Puritan, 1600s. Here's what he says. God is a satisfying good, a good that fills the heart and quiets the soul. In him, I have all. I have all comforts, all delights, all contentment. No good below him who is the greatest good can satisfy the soul. A good wife, a good child, a good name, a good estate, a good friend cannot satisfy the soul. These may please, but they cannot satisfy. Maybe C.S. Lewis read Thomas Brooks. Larry Crabb, he lives today. Here's what he says. Real pleasure, the only kind that satisfies the human soul and at the same time transforms a man into a marvelously decent person is the sheer pleasure of living for the glory of God. It's what each of us was designed to do. As the eagle finds pleasure in soaring through the heights, so a person finds pleasure in knowing and doing God's will. There is no choice to be made between the pursuit of true pleasure and obedience to a holy God. They are one. Good stuff. Jonathan Edwards. They that have Christ have a soul-satisfying portion. They have the truest pleasures and comforts. Here is to be found the proper happiness of the soul. The joys are more exquisitely delighting than ever was enjoyed by the greatest connoisseur. There are no pleasures like those that are by the enlightening of the Spirit of Christ, the discoveries of the beauty of Christ, and the manifestations of his love. Are we satisfied with Christ? Is that true of us? That we would rather have Jesus than the craftsmanship of the finest connoisseur? Lewis also said that our problem is not that our desires are too strong. He said our problem is that our desires are too weak. What he meant by that is when he said, you know, he said, you're, you're desiring for the things of this world is controlling you. But your problem is not that you desire those things too much, particularly even sinful things. But your desire is too weak. What you should do is desire more, but desire the one thing more. He said, we, we seem to be content with building mud pies in the street, not knowing that what's being offered to us is a vacation at the coast. Jesus is better than the things that we put our hopes and trust in to bring satisfaction to our souls. Jesus is the bread of life. What's the difference between the bread of life and the roost Chris steak? 
one's necessary for survival. One will work, but it doesn't have to be extravagant. Sometimes it's nice when it is. But if we're living for that, we're going to be disappointed. So what does Jesus say? I am the bread of life. I am what's necessary for your salvation. I am what's necessary to keep you alive spiritually. He longs for us to be satisfied with him. He is the provision that our souls need and the only thing that can truly satisfy us. It was so valuable to him that he came into this world, took on flesh, and then laid down his life to set us free from seeking ultimate meaning and fulfillment and eternal satisfaction and things that can't satisfy. He came so that we wouldn't have to pursue those things any longer. That we could be found by him and find satisfaction in that. So we should never stop being amazed that Christ loves us. Us, who loves the gifts more than the giver. And yet, he is patient and kind with us, constantly drawing us to trust in him alone, to live in repentance and faith. So where do we need to repent? We need to turn from our dependence on the things of this world to trust in him, to bring us true contentment, true joy that comes to us through the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we so easily forget the gospel. Or we put it in a compartment and we only bring it out for our religious events. When we're reading our Bible or praying or coming to church. And then we pursue the things of the world in every other moment. Would you help us to repent of that? To not rejoicing over in you in every moment. To not seeing that you're the ultimate satisfaction in every moment. To be able to see the good things that you've given us and rejoice in them and give thanks for them. But not make them ultimate things. But to know that you alone are worthy to sit at the zenith of our affections, at the core of who we are. For you have made us and you've designed us to be satisfied by one thing. That's you. So would you give us that satisfaction? We're thankful that Christ died on the cross, that, that he showed ultimately that the miracle of dying and then rising from the dead was the sign that we needed. Help us to contemplate that and rejoice in him, the one who has come and laid down his life as a ransom to set us free from sin, and shame, and guilt, and lesser gods, that we might worship you rightly, the one true God. It's in your son's glorious name that we pray. Amen. Please stand.